Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Melissa King, Chief Executive Officer at Surf Lifesaving Australia. Well, it's great to have you along today, and I'm sure you will enjoy this conversation with Melissa. This interview was recorded via Skype rather than face-to-face, so some of the audio quality may not be quite as good as a normal Arate podcast. However, she's a fascinating lady with a great story, and I'm sure you will enjoy it. Before I introduce Melissa to you properly, let me firstly introduce myself for those who are new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive, and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders, and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. So if you have any recruitment needs within your own business, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you about how we can help. Let me now introduce to you, Melissa King. Melissa King completed a Bachelor of Arts in Recreation and Marketing before commencing her career predominantly in marketing and corporate sponsorship roles. She's worked for some iconic organisations, including being the Director of Marketing and Development with the Chartered Secretaries of Australia, Manager of Sponsorship and Business Relations with the APEC 2007 Task Force, Group Manager Corporate Partnerships with the Sydney Opera House, and then working with her current organisation, Surf Life Saving Australia, initially in the role of General Manager Communications and Business Development, and in her current role since July 2015 of Chief Executive Officer. She has also completed a Master's of Business Administration and a Graduate Certificate in Arts Management. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Melissa King. Well, Melissa, uh, wonderful to have you along to the Arate podcast. Uh, we're doing this over Skype. I'm in beautiful, sunny Brisbane. How's the weather where you are? I'm in beautiful, sunny Sydney. In fact, I'm I'm at the spiritual home of Surf Life Saving at Bondi Beach. Oh, fantastic. So uh, I think we're, we're both in wonderful, beautiful environments. <laughs> is that where your office is, at Bondi? We have um, two. So we have one at Bondi Icebergs and we also have another office at Rosebury. Oh, fantastic. Well, look... Uh, why don't we start off by just telling us a little bit about your current professional responsibilities? Yeah, so uh, I'm the Chief Executive of Surf Life Saving Australia. Surf Life Saving Australia is uh, the peak coastal water safety rescue authority and emergency service um, in Australia. Uh, as CEO, my responsibilities are very much about ensuring um really the delivery of our strategic plan, which we call SLS 2020. And uh, that's all about really, our vision is zero preventable deaths in Australian waters. And uh, as a part of that, we we are very uh, strong on ensuring that we deliver to our mission of saving lives, creating great Australians and building better communities. as, as CEO, I'm, I'm responsible, obviously, for a team of people here in Sydney. We also have three subsidiary companies, our Surf Life Saving Foundation, which is based in Brisbane, right. and that uh, raises over $11 million that is returned to the movement annually. Mm-hmm. And then we have two um, helicopter companies that, uh, that SLSA uh, own and operate. Okay. 
Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a very complex and challenging um, role, but the nature of what we do means that uh, every day I come to work, I feel very proud to be associated and a part of this organisation. Fantastic. And you've been with the business for a while, uh, but been in the role of CEO for about 18 months. So started in the role of CEO in July 2015, so just over a year. Yeah, right. Okay, great. Well, we'll obviously uh, talk more about that a little later in this conversation. I'm particularly interested in the vision for 2020, but why don't we go back to where it all began and tell us a little bit about where you were born and your early life, mum and dad, etc. Right. So um, I was born in far north Queensland. Right. Um, and uh, my my family, my parents are actually Victorian by birth. Okay. Um, and Dad was involved in insurance, right. and we moved around uh, around the world, really. Um, so I was born in Far North Queensland. I was there until I was three, and then we moved to New Zealand and had seven years in New Zealand, and then moved to the UK, um, where I spent most of my schooling life. And then my father retired and. Uh, we came back to Australia, which mum and dad were, were very, you know, we're going home. I, I was very much home in England. Right. Um, but came back to Australia and went to university in Victoria and uh, went back to the to the UK and, you know, as you do, do the travelling thing and uh, and then I've settled in, in Australia in Sydney. Uh-huh. So uh, you really life very much a nomad and that was all because of your dad getting transferred with his work or taking new roles or how did that all come about? Dad was uh, transferred with his work so he, um, he spent probably 30 years with the same organisation which today seems to be a, a rarity. It is. Um, and uh, he, uh, he travelled around Australia in that role. He was... Um, he was very much the person who was brought in to transform different areas of the business okay. uh, that he worked with. Right. And, uh, so his last role was head of UK Europe in the Middle East, based out of um, based out of London. Okay. And uh, he retired at fifty-two. Uh-huh. And, uh, he he passed away probably two three years ago now, but okay. uh, he certainly rolled into retirement very well. At one stage, I think my mother thought that he should go back to work so that she could have her free time again. <laughs> <laughs> and did you have any brothers and sisters? I do. I have two older sisters. Right. Um, who are 10 and 11 years older than me, so I'm okay. very much the baby of the family. Right. Um, one of them lives in New Zealand and the other one in, in, in Melbourne. Okay. And how do you think uh, having such a nomadic uh, younger life, living in, living in a lot of different countries, uh, has sort of affected your professional outlook? Oh, um, I actually think that that travel is one of... Um, it's a gift that allows you to see the world from different different eyes. And I think that certainly um, Australians, I think it's so important to travel because you see things when you come back differently and you appreciate what you've got in your own backyard. Mm-hmm. For me growing up, moving every sort of seven years, I don't think I actually thought it was a problem. Um, and I think that in terms of my professional career now, it has enabled me to have some skills to be able to, you know, walk into any environment and and try and engage with people and and understand where they're coming from and what they're doing because you become resilient mm-hmm. um, when you've, you know, when you move around and, and and travel a little bit. I think I was always very um, fortunate. I played a lot of sport, so wherever I went, um, certainly when I was older. 
that whole sporting um, side was was a great entree into a new school or a new right. environment. Um, and that whole piece around teamwork certainly filters through, I think, in, in everybody's professional career. Um, you know, you, you achieve things with a team of people, not just as an individual. And being able to work as a part of a team is, is very important. But it also means that you can identify your strengths and, and potentially some of your gaps and, and know, you know, that you don't have to be the full package, but you, you bring people together to, to create the best outcomes. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things, you know, for me looking at your career is that uh, as somebody who's travelled the world, now you're running one of, you know, Australia's most iconic brands and probably something that most international travellers coming to Australia will directly experience by going to the beach and, you know, seeing surf lifesavers. Uh, so that must be quite a, you know, fascinating to be on the receiving end of these people who are travelling into Australia and getting exposed to the organisation that you run. Yes, that's true. I think the interesting thing about surf lifesaving too, and you talk about it being an iconic and, and beloved brand, is that sometimes in those situations we take those things for granted because they've always been there. Yeah, sure. And when visitors come to Australia, you know, one of the things that, that we, we need to be very mindful of is that we all know to swim between the red and yellow flags because it's almost it's almost inbuilt in our DNA. Yeah. But uh, when, when visitors come, you know, that scenario of, you know, you're landing in Australia and everybody wants to go to the iconic Bondi Beach or, you know, whatever beach it might be, is that real safety thing of... of mm-hmm of swimming between the red and yellow flags mm-hmm. we've had no drowning deaths between the red and yellow flags and so that's that's really important and interestingly statistically our visitors are actually you know not uh, high up in the numbers of 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 people who unfortunately have lost their lives um through drowning right okay well let's uh uh talk more about that a little later so you you um went to university then went and uh, traveled and then came back, and so where, how did your career unfold from there? Oh, um, <laughs> I haven't had I haven't had a sort of direct career path. I think I've I've moved around based on my skills, and uh, I uh, worked for Sydney Children's Hospital Foundation when I when I first came back from overseas, um, and then from there I actually moved into um, the Governance Institute in okay. a business development role, which. So people looked and went, really? You're going from a sort of not-for-profit and and growing um, fundraising activities to something that's quite different. But I think the beauty of of that is that that real understanding of governance, um, which is so important. And in fact, when I joined was was, uh, when there was a whole lot of activity happening with Enron and and, poor governance around the world. Um, so it was a really interesting uh, time for me that subject matter was incredibly dry, <laughs> mm. but nevertheless really interesting. And from there, I uh, I moved into and worked for Prime Minister Howard on uh, APEC Australia 2007, mm-hmm. which is one of the largest business events mm-hmm. held around the world. So what was it originally that attracted you into the space of business development, particularly around fundraising and uh, and the areas that you've gone on to specialise in? Um, for me, at my very core, is I want to make a difference. So the work that I do, I want it to make a difference um, to people um, and, and to the community. So Sydney Children's Hospital um, Foundation, 
that was very core. I mean, it was about sick children. And it was it was really about ensuring that we could do the research, we could have the equipment, we could, you know, really try and make the lives of little people who weren't very well mm-hmm. better. Um, you move that across to the governance institution, you think about... Um, how good governance really is the cornerstone of our economic community and our business community. So for me, that was very much about making a difference in that commercial sort of sense. And then moving on to um, to APEC, that, that's about showcasing, you know, Australia in the best possible light that, that changes the economic contribution that we can deliver um, to the world by, by being seen in a positive light, but also positioning and having all of those 21 member economies experience uh, a different part of Australia. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's an interesting area, particularly in relation to sponsorship and philanthropy and around uh, not-for-profits. It's a very sophisticated space now, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, if you look statistically, not-for-profits, uh, it's, it's one of the largest kind of businesses in Australia. Um, and, and I don't think people realise it. There's something like 71,000 charities um, in Australia. I mean, that's that's huge. Mm-hmm. And the reality is from a business development sort of sponsorship perspective, it really is um, a very crowded space. So. Mm-hmm. It's about understanding what's the differentiator. How can you work with businesses to actually be able to deliver positive outcomes that showcase not only what they're doing, but what you're doing too. And I think that's one of the things that really interests me is around creating shared value and and looking at it. It's not about an exchange of, you know, give me $10 and I'll give you a, I'll slap your brand next to mine. It's really about what are some of the core things that we need to achieve and how together can we achieve that thinking about you know the areas between any business and 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 the and the not-for-profit that that can that can amplify and 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 make a positive contribution Mm -hmm. and so uh doing that with apec for almost two years and then moving to the sydney opera house i imagine uh you know, getting into the Sydney Opera House and then having five years in that role would have enabled you to really start to do some very deep dives around this sort of space. You know, what, what were some of the critical learnings you had during that period that have enabled you then to, you know, start to track your career through to your current role? I think the interesting thing about Sydney Opera House um, is that, again, it's one of the most iconic um, buildings in the world. Um, but from a business perspective, one of the core parts uh, of me coming on board with them was to be able to look at things from a commercial perspective. Mm-hmm. So often, you know, we can get tied up in, you know, the art is amazing. And yes, it is. But a business is going to engage with an organisation because they want to achieve a positive outcome. So with Sydney Opera House, it was very much about looking at it from that commercial perspective and saying, well, what are the key components of what we have to offer that will that will benefit you? I mean, I can use an example. We, we created a partnership with Origin Energy many years ago, and that was about that sustainable energy. And it was about how, you know, we could uh, light the sails or have power within the house, but it was in a sustainable way. Okay. And so that was very much telling the story of what Origin was doing at mm-hmm. the time, but also talking about sustainability from Sydney Opera House's perspective. Mm-hmm. And for people who are completely unfamiliar with this space, uh, who go along and enjoy uh, 
uh, events, but not really understanding the whole back uh, end of you needing to raise funds from corporate sponsors, etc., uh, to enable you know, these um, uh, opportunities for the public. Just talk through in detail, you know, what does it mean to be group manager corporate partnerships for somebody like the Opera House? Um, I think you need to have a broad skill base mm -hmm. because when we think about partnerships, we're thinking about marketing, we're thinking about communications, we're thinking about PR, we're thinking um, about a number of different components um, to it. So it is really, I think, about also understanding what assets you have to sell and why. So you become a translator mm -hmm. in that you really need to understand what's at the core of a performance, but then on the other side, how is that meaningful for, for a particular business? And if you look at the partnership the Opera House has with Samsung, that was very much about um, understanding and unpacking that core piece. So it can be around content, it can be around digital, it can be around actually bringing the inside of Sydney Opera House to a wider audience because not everybody might be able to get in the car and go and experience sitting in a seat at Sydney Opera House. But we can amplify those experiences by taking them into a different a different channel. So, you know, everybody today talks a lot about digital. But digital is all about unpacking and being able to experience something wonderful anytime, any place, anywhere. Um, so for my role as group manager, corporate partnerships, it was really about trying to explore what opportunities there could be and, and also to trying to think outside the box. And that's one of those really weird statements, I think, sometimes where we talk about that, but what does that actually mean? And it, it's really about thinking laterally um, and, and not being housed within um, whatever is normal. Um, so. For me at Sydney Opera House and, and for my team, we were always about, you know, what are the opportunities? What's something that would look a little bit different? How could we bring that to life? Um, and understanding that in the scope of uh, a location that does have some very significant kind of rules and regulations around it mm -hmm. um, because of the heritage nature of, 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 the, um, of the building. Mm -hmm. And so five, almost uh, uh, six years into that role, what was it that uh, motivated you then to step across to join Surf Lifesaving? I think for me, um, you can be in a role or... or that uh, you've done, you've achieved what you wanted to achieve. Mm -hmm. And Surf Lifesaving had uh, a number of complexities that interested me. So when I say that, you know, I'm talking about, yes, it's a rescue authority, it's the largest volunteer movement. We run major sporting events. Mm -hmm. Our Australian championships are the same magnitude as the Commonwealth Games. So it had fundraising, it had lots of boxes that I really wanted to be involved in, not to mention the most iconic brand, as you've already said. Um, so for me, when when that role, and, and it was a communications and business development role, um, when that role came up, I just uh, I just thought all oh, my Christmases had come at once. Right. And uh, for me, it was, um, I, I set myself targets. And so I said, well, if I get an interview, that'd be great. And, uh, well, clearly I did get an interview and, and I ended up um, 
being successful and securing the, the general manager communications and business development at a time when surf lifesaving was going through significant change. Mm -hmm. So it certainly um, was an interesting time to, to come on board with the organisation. And it's an amazing organisation, Richard. It really is. And so what was some of the uh, significant change that it was going through at that time then? So in uh, 2012, Surf Lifesaving um, undertook a review of its operations and that of the foundation. And as a part of that review, Surf Lifesaving Australia was restructured mm -hmm. um, and I came in as part of the um, restructure. Mm -hmm. um, basically, there was communication in the marketplace that funds weren't being directed in the way that they should be. We'd had a death at the Australian Championships, mm -hmm. um, and you know it was it was a hard time for surf, and it was important for the movement that it looked at itself to better deliver the outcomes that are required of an organisation of its type, and in doing the culture change in the and the. Um, change management piece that allowed us to very clearly and transparently describe and explain the activities that we undertook. Mm -hmm. So you, you uh, were coming into the organisation at the time where, you know, particularly this role, general manager communications and, and getting some positive um, stories out into the marketplace to ensure that uh, people still had the highest level of respect for uh, surf lifesaving, you know, was paramount. Oh, 100%. And I think it was m more about actually just telling the story. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we can be in a situation with media where um, sometimes the information that, that people pull together might not be the full the full facts. And I think mm -hmm. it is as a federated structure, you've got seven state and territories, you've got the peak body, you've got 313 clubs around Australia. And it's a very proud organisation. Mm -hmm. and, and therefore, you know, you're quite right in saying you, you want to maintain and ensure that that positioning um, in the marketplace because we are a beloved brand. Pe people look at Surf Lifesavers and they are trusted individuals, mm. and so they should be. Mm. Um, and the work that we do should be open and transparent, and it is. And so you're in that role for two years and yep. then uh, promoted into the role of a chief executive. Yes. Great. And so um, when you stepped into the role of chief executive, what was the mandate? You know, what, what, what was happening uh, in Surf Lifesaving at the time? And they said, okay, great, uh, we now want you to lead the business into the future. Um, what were the critical tasks? I think um, the key for me was ensuring the long-term sustainability of the movement mm -hmm. and in doing that, making the lives of our volunteers easier. Mm -hmm. and, and a part of that is around um, a mindset shift uh, of kind of this invest to grow we have to invest to grow and and what does that look like and for an organization like surf lifesaving that's 108 years young as i say mm -hmm. there are things that we need to do to maximize that so thinking about our digital strategy thinking about business transformation and how we use channels to better um, enable our volunteers to do what they do best so some of the mandates that 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 the board were were very strong and 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 
I'm also strong on is around that that digital digital slash technological transformation so that you know we are able to ensure that we as a movement as a whole of movement are actually leading leading that push and I say that for several reasons but one one of the main reasons too is that nearly 50% of our members are under the age of 18 yeah so you know we want to maintain our relevance we want to be around for the next 100 200 years mm-hmm. and in doing that we need to we need to be um, we don't have to be at the cutting edge of, of technology but we certainly need to be able to use technology to enable the, the work that we do mm-hmm. so if I if I look at it from the perspective of I'm an average Aussie. I like yeah. to go to the beach on the weekend and I go yeah. there and I have a swim between the flags and I see the surf lifesavers. You know, it, to me, it, I just take it for granted that uh, when I go to the beach, they're going to be there. Yes. So when you're talking about uh, ensuring long-term sustainability and investing to grow, yes. for me as the average Australian, what, what does that mean? It costs us approximately $81,000 to put a patrol on the beach. Okay. So when you think about 313 clubs around the country, that's about $25 million. Yeah. So we have 47,000 patrolling members. Mm-hmm. They're people who give up their time. Mm-hmm. So ensuring the long-term sustainability means that we are making the interaction between a volunteer and surf lifesaving easy. Okay. And in doing that, that will mean that we continue to have patrolling members on the beach. Okay. Now, what I will say is that, that that's there's no scare tactic in this. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you think about people's time, often you'll hear people say, oh, you know, we're time poor. Mm-hmm. We're actually not time poor. We just want to use our time in the best way we can. So mm-hmm. I want to make sure that my volunteers are actually feeling really positive about their interaction with surf lifesaving. Mm-hmm. And the giving of their time, which is incredibly valuable, is maximised. Mm-hmm. So the risk is that unless you remain relevant through your digital strategies and, and so on, that the current high representation of younger volunteers, they'll just be busy doing other things and not want to volunteer anymore. I think the risk is the same for any volunteer organisation. You, you absolutely want to be relevant. You want to be a place where people choose to give their time. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, you need to, for us, as an emergency service and a, as a rescue authority, there are certain um, requirements that we have of our volunteers so that they're trained to the level to be able yeah. to, to keep the beach safe. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, you want to be an organisation that is fun and that's engaging and that, you know, yes, you're giving of your time to volunteer and patrol on the beach, but you might be doing other fun things, like you might be doing swims and paddles and runs and, you know, engaging with people. And that's what what people want. So whilst I talk about it as a digital strategy, it really is about connecting a community. Mm -hmm. And that's the community internally within Surf Life Saving, but also the community externally. Mm. And when, I mean, Australia being such a beach culture, I imagine in a lot of ways Australia would be, you know, at the forefront of what's happening in relation to engaging and maintaining these communities. But is part of your role to look at what's happening as best practice around the world and bring ideas back from there? 
What's interesting is we, we have uh, the uh, International um, Lifesaving Federation. So yes. Australia is certainly very well represented in that environment. In fact, the president of Surf Lifesaving Australia is the pre president of International Lifesaving Federation. Okay. So there is certainly information exchange. Mm -hmm. We um, spend probably more of our focus on, on the South Pacific and the Pacific region mm -hmm. and helping those countries where... Um, they are surrounded by water and, and ensuring that, that, you know, they have a, a safe environment. And we do exchanges. We're, we're at the moment doing some exchange with, work with Japan. So it is very much about keeping a finger on the pulse internationally. But in some ways, um, Australia would be seen probably as the, the leading, the leading uh, country, if you like, in, okay. in, in this area. Okay. And, uh, and so what about in terms of your own... Uh, skill set as a leader. I mean, this is your first CEO role. Uh, you know, stepping into a role like that. Granted, you've been in that role now for you know about eighteen months. But when you were offered that opportunity, what and you looked at yourself, what were the areas that you thought, wow, if I'm really going to you know make a success of this, these are the areas that I need to spend some time working on. For me, I think one of the areas is is around um, teams and thinking about, um, you know, unconscious bias and, and how we better develop our teams mm -hmm. and how we allow other t other people to grow around us. Mm -hmm. So I was fortunate to um, undertake a, um, a professional development course in leading teams for innovation and success, mm -hmm. um, which, which talks about complex groups of people and how we work with people to achieve outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, and that was incredibly valuable just by nature of the fact that Surf Lifesaving, you know, it, it's, a, it's a very large organisation. There's lots of different people who come from lots of different backgrounds. And I think, too, as the first female CEO of Surf Lifesaving, as well, it, it is about, you know, sometimes understanding the joy and the beauty and difference and, and being able to plug into that. So that's certainly an area where um, I have and I continue to to um, do some work around teamwork and, and managing people and, and engaging with people. I think that as a CEO, you need to be resilient um, and understanding what resilience looks like um, and knowing that you bring, you know, the full self into the room and, and we're all made up of, of our past. And, and sometimes, you know, you, you have to understand that when, you know, you could be getting into a, a strong negotiation and, and you know you want to achieve the outcomes, but you need to be able to see things from other people's from other people's perspectives as well. Mm -hmm. So I think you know team teamwork and working around that whole resilience piece is is something that I continue to to explore. Mm -hmm. And that was a, a course that you did at Stanford University, is that correct? Yes. Right. And did you actually travel to the US for that, or that was Galilee? Yeah. Well, wow, that must have been quite an interesting experience. I imagine you would have uh, had a cohort of some very interesting people that you were studying with at the time. You know, it, it was it was fantastic. What was also really interesting is that, you know, I walked into a room and if you walk into a room in Australia and say I work for Surf Lifesaving, everybody nods and knows who we are and what we do. Yeah. I walked into a room of 60 people from all over the world and there were six Australians, right. so six people knew what Surf Lifesaving did, but many, many others just had no idea. Okay. So what was good about that was it actually crystallises 
how I explained the role of surf life saving in the community in Australia, but across the different things that we do. So whilst I have said many times we're a rescue authority, drowning prevention, we're also, you know, one of the leading trainers in first aid and CPR. You know, we've got massive education um, component of what we do. Um, you know, we're not only water, we're in the sky with the Westpac Lifesaver Rescue Helicopters. So it's a really, um, it was a really great opportunity for me to actually be very clear about the role of the organisation and also talk about the federated nature, which everybody was like, why would you have a federated structure? <laughs> you know, they found that really interesting. And I said, well, you would disenfranchise the very volunteers who give their time mm. if you don't have that sort of structure. So just so, explain to the people who are listening to this podcast who might not understand what you mean by a federated structure. So if we think about federal government, you've got Canberra and then you've got seven state and territories and local government and whatever. So... Federated structure and surf life saving means that we've got the peak body, which I'm the chief executive of, mm -hmm. and then we've got uh, state organisations, so surf life saving New South Wales, surf life saving Western Australia, so each of the state and territories, and then underneath that, depending upon their state, there might be some branches, and then we've got 313 clubs. Mm -hmm. And so what that means for you as a CEO is that stakeholder engagement and making sure that uh, you have uh, the buy-in of the uh, each state, you know, adds a, an additional level of complexity to your role. Yes. But what that also brings is, you know, amazing information. So the states and territories are responsible for the operational delivery mm. um, of, of kind of keeping our beaches safe, if mm. you like. Yep. Um, and, and that stakeholder engagement piece by nature of federation is is very much about a collaborative piece of, of, of working to achieve outcomes. Mm -hmm. And then your foundation, uh, on the other hand, is a national arrangement. So tell us about the way that the foundation engages with your, uh, your various states in this federated model. So the Surf Life Saving Foundation, which is based out of Brisbane, um, is, as you have said, a, a, a national fundraising arm. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, an MOU, we have a, a memorandum of understanding that we will actually undertake uh, the fundraising activities for the movement. Mm -hmm. um, and we do that through um, philanthropic activities. So we have donors, workplace giving, etc. Um, we also run a lottery like... Uh, you know, house and land and so mm -hmm. on. And we also have a surf rescue trust. So the states uh, all agree that, that we will undertake that um, and hence our ability to raise um, funds that then get returned um, to the states and, and to the movement. Mm -hmm. And I imagine given your background specifically, uh, because this fundraising space is becoming more and more competitive and uh, uh, there is a, a lot more competition for funds not only from you know high net worth individuals but also corporates as we spoke about earlier i yes. imagine a, a big part of the 2020 strategy uh is focused on that it is i mean one of our pillars is you know to encourage the community to participate and donate mm -hmm. and i think when you you think about a, a volunteer organization Donation can be both the physical cash, but it can also be people's time. Mm -hmm. um, and we need both. So we have created over the last sort of 
10 years, a strategy to ensure that we can maximise the return on investment in terms of raising funds to go back um, to, to, the, to the movement. Okay. And uh, that is, as I've said, through the, those, uh, those three or four pillars. Um, and we continue to look at how we do what we do, how do we improve it, um, are there opportunities for us to engage in different areas of fundraising. So it's very much about keeping on the front foot, if you like. Um, but I think the other part uh, that I'm incredibly proud of in regards to the foundation is it's an amazing team of people. Um, but we also transparently report on how the funds are used by the states. Mm -hmm. So for a donor, I think that's really important um, because you do, you want to know that, that you know, your hard-earned dollar that you're donating to Surf Life Saving is going to an area of greatest need. Mm, absolutely. And what are some of the other uh, key elements of your 2020 vision that people might be interested in? Um, the key elements for our vision is ensuring that life-saving services match community needs. Okay. So it's incredibly important for us to make sure that what we're doing is actually in the area of greatest need. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is we have a target of reducing drowning by 50% by 2020, and that's a, that, that's a challenge. Um, so what we, we do is we ensure that all of our allocation of resources is based on evidence-based research. Mm -hmm. So we know where black spot areas are. We, um, we report on drowning deaths annually and we look at the age groups. We look at what's happened, how they've happened, so that we can better target our resources. Mm -hmm. um, for example, we've got uh, a rip current is one of the largest contributors to drowning deaths in Australia. Mm -hmm. And we know that 80, about 89% of drowning deaths are males. Um, so we've just launched a new rip current awareness campaign that's sort of busting the myths. Um, we talk about our black spot programs and, and we ensure that the resources required to either reduce the risk or remove the risk is focused on and you can't really remove the risk when you're talking about an aquatic environment because by its very nature mm. you know she is she's wonderful but you know she is also very dangerous and so it's ensuring those things um are very clear and we're not we're not basing it on oh, i think this might be the case we've got actual research behind mm -hmm. what we're doing that's an interesting statistic 89 percent of drowning deaths are male and you mentioned earlier that nobody ever has drowned or is not drowning between the flags so do i assume from that that men are you know foolhardy and they think i don't need to swim between the flags and because of that they're getting caught in rips and drowning or yeah. is it because men are typically doing more high risk you know, surfing or, or um, rock fishing and things like that, which put them in a more dangerous environment? Um, the answer to that is probably yes and yes. Right. Uh, but I'll preface that. Uh, the majority of down, drowning deaths happen um, more than 5Ks from the red and yellow flags. Okay. Uh, and our... Research has shown us that people actually think they are more competent in the sea than they they really are. Yeah. Um, and so the, the research has shown us that men, uh, and, and we're talking sort of older men, mm -hmm. 35 to 55, mm -hmm. um, 
are putting themselves in situations where they're not competent. Right. And, you know, if you don't know what a rip looks like and you're swept out to sea mm -hmm. and you're panicking, you know, th these things can happen. Mm. Um, the, the, the drowning deaths are also linked to things that you have mentioned, you know, going out in a, in a, uh, in a boat and not wearing a life jacket, mm -hmm. rock fishing and putting yourself, you know, on a, on a rocky outcrop and, and you don't have a life jacket on. I mean, mm -hmm. there are some simple things that people can do to reduce the risk. Mm. And I imagine in your environment too, you know, it's the stories of the drownings that get all the press and attention. Uh, it's not the stories of, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people who swim every year and, uh, and have a great experience and, you know, come back uh, safely. So you're constantly in an environment where bad news is, you know, often the only publicity that you'll proactively get. That's true. I think, I think that it does raise awareness when we have situations where unfortunately somebody may not be going home to their family. Mm. Um, but in saying that, if I think about the, the RIP current campaign that we've just launched, we've had amazing support from media outlets as we do for our fundraising campaign mm -hmm. who provide you know, um, pro bono media for okay. us to get the message out there. So. Uh, on the one side, I think I'd, I like to try and look at things as a positive, and the positive is that for us, one death is one too many. Yeah. And it's so important that we actually all individually have ownership. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit like, you know, Richard, I could say to you, let's go to the beach, and you'll go, okay, well, let's go for a swim here. I can be the one who says, oh, no, let's swim between the red and yellow flags. Mm -hmm. Or... You know, so each and every one of us have the ability to make a positive contribution to ensuring that we're safe at the beach. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's uh, not unlike, I suppose, a drink driving campaign where, you know, it's your responsibility to make sure that your friends don't get behind the wheel when they're drunk. 100%, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And so uh, in terms of looking towards the future, obviously uh, you've got some uh, fairly concrete goals uh, uh, about reducing drowning deaths and, and re, uh, increasing some of the, uh, the elements to engage and maintain your young member base. But in terms of actually within the business, from an organisational point of view, what are the kind of things that you're excited about delivering in the future as CEO? I think one of them is very much around developing our people. Mm -hmm. um, and, and really, we have quite a young workforce which is fantastic, but we want to be able to be current and relevant for them and develop their expertise. Um, so for me, it, it is a real focus around um, developing our team. It's also about achieving outcomes and celebrating achieving those outcomes so that you, you are seeing positive things happening in the business mm -hmm. because that then makes people proud. Mm -hmm. Um, it's also about encouraging that collaboration and stakeholder engagement so that you're bringing everybody on the journey. So for me, you know, absolutely, you know, the financials are incredibly important um, and being transparent around that and having good governance around what we do. But it's also about developing people and creating an environment um, by leading, by showing people um, those positive things that, that you do and how you behave to encourage people to, to do that also. Um, 
So I think, you know, a robust, strong financial base, um, but also, you know, that whole culture and people engagement is really important to achieving outcomes. Mm-hmm. And what about for yourself personally? Uh, you know, you've uh, had a taste now of being a CEO and delivering some great outcomes. You're still uh, quite early in, in terms of your career potential. What would you like to uh, achieve personally in the future? I'd like to get about three or four new major partners in for Surf Life Saving Australia. Right. <laughs> and whilst you, you've asked me a question about what I personally want to achieve kind of professionally, yeah. I am very much live and breathe this organisation, mm-hmm. so its success is my success. Mm-hmm. I, I think that I need to bring the best me to this environment and be open to developing my skill set so I can better achieve um, and showcase things for my team. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think continual learning and continual curiosity is incredibly important. Um, And and I would strive to to continue to achieve that. Yeah, I mean, I note from your professional uh, qualification background, you've uh, done your MBA, you've done this course at Stanford, so obviously ongoing uh, uh, education is important to you. When you think about other potential opportunities to learn, is there anything out in the market that you're excited about potentially doing? I've been very fortunate. Actually, this year um, I've been a part of the McKinsey Remarkable Women Program, which okay. is about 20 C-suite leaders, um, female leaders. Right. Um, and that's been a program about kind of leading self but leading others. Right. Is that an Australian um, program or an international one? It's an international program that McKinsey run. This is the Australian kind of Australian New Zealand component of okay. it, um, and that's been a really enlightening um, course. It's very much about understanding who you are and where you come from right. to better enable you to lead others. And so, was that something you were invited to do? Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. I yeah. mean, certainly, uh, I imagine again the cohort. You know, that group of twenty people must be. Uh, you know, really uh, amazing to spend time with. There are some amazing leaders in this country, but I will be very specific. The the women who um, I was fortunate to meet through this course are inspiring. Okay. And um, the fact that uh, McKinsey sponsored me to be a part of this as the only not-for-profit in the group Mm -hmm. um, really was uh, it was amazing and it's one of those programs that you know if you get the opportunity <laughs> you should absolutely do it because it unpacks a lot of information mm. but you see things from different perspectives so mm. there was everything from you know energy companies to airlines to banks to you know we're talking sort of top organizations mm-hmm. and having that perspective and having other people kind of engage with you not only opens up ideas and opportunities but it actually gives you a great uh group of of people that that you can you can bounce ideas off and and engage with 
That's excellent. Well, we might have to talk offline and uh, perhaps you can suggest some of the other uh, participants who might be interested in being on the podcast because uh, I'm very keen to continue to showcase uh, top Australian female uh, C-suite talent. I think that there's a real opportunity to be a role model and, you know, assist young people coming through. And I suppose that's where I'd like to go in terms of my last couple of questions. You know, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are aspiring CEOs. And, uh, you know, as you said right at the beginning, your career has probably been a bit of a road less travelled in terms of a non-traditional career pathway to CEO. But if you were talking to people with that appetite, you know, what would you say are some of the key lessons you've had along the way that have enabled you to, to step into your CEO responsibilities? Uh, I, th- I think I mentioned it earlier. I think you need to be resilient. Yeah. Um, I think it's incredibly important to give it a go. Mm-hmm. Uh, we often talk about, oh, maybe I could or would I or should I. The worst thing that can happen is somebody can say no to you. Mm. And really, is that is that, that bad? Mm. It isn't. You know, it isn't. I mean, I remember reading uh, Lean In and that actually was one of the books that changed my view on the world. Mm -hmm. And it made me turn around and say, you know what, life is too short. If you want to try something, give it a go. And so what what specifically was the lesson out of Lean In that was uh, resonated with you so powerfully? The lesson was that, that traditionally women don't step up. They don't lean in. Right. And Sharon talked about, you know, you think about when you're in in school and the teacher will ask a question and, you know, all the boys will shoot their hands up or they'll just respond and the girls will sit there thinking about it. And she went through different examples of that over time. Mm -hmm. And at every example, all I would do was nod my head. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and for me, it was that moment of, of a, a, a switch being turned on to say, lean in, mm-hmm. step up, you know, be present in it, be engaged. Mm-hmm. Because to your point, if you see people like you, so if you see other women who are leaders, it's not unusual anymore. No, that's exactly right. You know, and, and, and if I can do it, well, so can you. Yeah. And sometimes you need to see those positive role models mm. to be able to say, actually, you know what, if she can do it, I can. Mm. Absolutely. And I, I was uh, had a meeting with three female very senior executives last week, and we were talking about the fact that a lot of the gender bias that's being referred to is, you know, it, um, is largely uh, outdated now. And uh, as an executive recruiter, I can say that in 99.99% of cases, my client will say to me, we would strongly encourage uh, having a new female CEO or whatever the role might be. So there is a genuine appetite out there to really support and enable women to take these roles, but there still is a reticence on behalf of um, you know, uh, women to, uh, to put themselves out there. And I know that I'm you know, generalising here, but uh, uh, I ran four C-level roles uh, over a month period, three of them in the not-for-profit space last year. And when we looked across the candidate pool, we found that only 7% of applicants were women. Yeah. And so I think that the encouragement needs to happen, you know, early in, in, in careers to say, you know what, to use your term, lean in, or, you know, perhaps uh, another way is just take the risk of, you know, applying for something that you might feel is slightly outside of your current skill set, knowing that there's a lot of people out there that want to mentor and support you to be successful. 
absolutely. And, you know, I'm a prime example of, of, of when I went for the original role at Surf Lifesaving, I was like, oh, God, you know, I can do, I can do 70% or I can do 80%. Yeah. And, 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 you know, traditionally women will say, well, unless I can do 100%, I'm not applying. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where I turn around and say, what's the worst thing that can happen? Mm-hmm. You don't get the job. Or yeah. somebody says no. Well, so what? Try again. You know, because there are amazing skills out in the marketplace. But if we don't know about them, if you don't put yourself forward, how, how do we know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that that is uh, such a valuable piece of advice for people who are listening in, not only um, women listening in, but men as well, uh, that uh, you need to ask for help. And, uh, and be resilient enough that if you get a few knockbacks along the way, that just assists you in becoming more focused and clearer about what you truly want. Absolutely. Mm. Oh. Cool. Well, look, uh, and then final question before I let you get on with your day, because I know that you're very busy. Uh, you, we've talked a lot about your career and about your work and, and so on, but when you're not working, what are the kind of things that you enjoy doing uh, to keep uh, the batteries charged? <laughs> I have uh, I have two dogs. I right. have an eighteen month old giant schnauzer who has boundless energy. Right. So uh, she and I uh, do our. I can't say it's running. It's more run walk <laughs> um, every day. Right. And I love going to the beach. Okay. So I do. I was at I was at uh, South Maroubra yesterday having a bit of a swim between right. the flags. Obviously. Yeah, of course. Um, I sail too, so you know when I get some time, I like to get out in the great outdoors. Uh-huh. Um, so, so yes. Do you have aspirations to sail around the world or do any of these exotic adventures like that? I had on my bucket list. I say had because I'm not sure if I still have it. Right. Um, doing a Sydney Hobart. Okay. So, um, and I've got some very good friends who are multiple Sydney Hobart sailors. Okay. Um, which is a pretty challenging race to put on your bucket list. <laughs> Absolutely. Not for the faint-hearted, that's for sure. <laughs> Not at all. But uh, that would take significant amount of training, and I don't think I leave work on time enough to do that right now. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, look, uh, Melissa, I've really enjoyed this conversation today. I'm sure people listening in uh, will find it fascinating to learn a lot more about not only your own career but uh, also about surf lifesaving. And uh, I'd just like to wish you a, a fantastic afternoon. Thank you so much, and you too. Okay. Thanks again for joining me on the Arate podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Melissa. I'm looking forward to having you along for future episodes. And in the meantime, have a fantastic week. Fantastic.